and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian O'Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Alexandra J. Roberts, Associate Professor of Law at the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. We will discuss her draft article, False Influencing. So welcome to the show, Alex. Thanks so much, Brian. It's great to have you on for a second time. Um, you're one of my favorite scholars, as you know, and this paper is one I've been looking forward to for a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really delighted to talk to you about it. Um, so I was thinking, you know, a lot of listeners probably have some background in this already, but for those who don't, right, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about exactly what an influencer is and what influencer advertising looks like. Sure. So um, an influencer, and I think my definition tracks fairly closely with the way that the Federal Trade Commission handles the question. Um, An influencer is pretty much anybody who receives either payment or free goods or services or any other kind of material benefit from sharing sponsored content on social media. Um, And that can be pretty much on any platform in any kind of way. So we typically, when we talk about influencers, we think a lot about the mega influencers with millions of followers. Those are often Kardashians and Jenners. Um, And oftentimes they're celebrities who actually established themselves offline first as actors or as athletes, things like that. Um, So they're able to ask a pretty impressive sum of money, sometimes for a single post. But we also are seeing movement toward um, using smaller and smaller influencers. So, for example, after the mega, we have macro influencers who maybe have um, hundreds of thousands of followers. We move down to micro influencers who have somewhere between 10 and 100,000 followers. And then Getting even smaller than that, we have what we call nano-influencers. And some companies are finding that the smaller the influencer, the the smaller the following the influencer has, the more niche they are and the more loyal and the more um, attuned those followers are. So the greater engagement those nano and micro-influencers get. So some companies will say, look, I could spend you know, $200,000 for a single post by Kim Kardashian and maybe a small subset of her followers are paying attention or I could take that same money and I could invest it in, you know, 10 posts over the course of a year by 15 different micro-influencers. I'm just kind of pulling these numbers out of nowhere. Uh, Don't quote me on any of this. But essentially, more posts or more influencers with smaller followings, and I'll see much greater engagement. So when I talk about engagement, I'm talking about likes and responses um, and also return on investment. So people actually clicking through following links, buying things that they see influencers talking about, posting about, modeling, wearing on social media. That's crazy. It's almost like a homeopathic theory of influencing or something like that. Yeah, so it is something of a kind of peer-to-peer or word-of-mouth model, but these aren't quite your peers, right? Um, In most cases, these are strangers. You're following a stranger, but there's this sense of intimacy, of authenticity, 
followers say they feel like they really know the person. They know um, kind of the ins and outs of their lives and the things they enjoy, the things that they do, their, you know, their parenting style or their professional tips and tricks, whatever it is, whatever the reason that they follow that influencer, they feel like they have a really strong connection to them, which is part of what makes influencer marketing so effective. Um, and you asked another question, which is essentially, what is influencer advertising? And when I use that term, that includes, to me, pretty much any kind of sponsored content. So if it's paid, if there's a material benefit, and um, a person is on a social media account, and actually that might include a dog or a cat or um, a CGI influencer who's not a human person of flesh and blood. So it's a pretty broad definition. Anytime they're out there shilling a particular product, whether it's really transparent and clear, whether it's really subtle, whether they've just got it, you know, in the background in their photo shoot or tagged somewhere or something like that, all of that I consider influencer advertising. And the FTC considers influencer advertising. Hmm. So I, 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 something I learned just now, right? I, mean, I, I conceived of influencer kind of as a really general, really broad term, but it sounds like in sort of a legal context, it's, or maybe, I mean, maybe I'm, I'm missing something, like maybe just in general, I, I was wrong, that it's like confined, the, the term influencer is confined to people who are using their influence in like a commercial context. Like, is it possible to be an influencer without also being involved in a commercial relationship with a company? Or is that like a con contradiction in terms? I think if you ask a few people, you'll get a few different definitions. So I have read um, various takes, some of which say, oh, anybody that people pay attention to is an influencer. Anybody who has kind of an impact. So a journalist who goes on television and reports the news is an influencer. An athlete who wears a certain style of clothing might be an influencer. Anybody who has influence is an influencer. I think that's a little bit less helpful in the context in which I'm working, which is how do we regulate, how do we per think about potential harm in this area when it comes to deceptive practices? How do we figure out who comes within the umbrella um, of the type of advertising in question? So absolutely, there would be some people who say, sure, you can be an influencer, you can be an influential person, right, um, without that kind of commercial tint to it. But for me, the the... That's the hook. That's the crux. Mm -hmm. Well, does that perhaps avoid some potential First Amendment concerns then in the sense that, you know, we're sort of limiting this conversation about influencers and influencer regulation to contexts in which people are engaging in commercial activity and encouraging or pro proposing commercial transactions rather than just expressing opinions writ large? I think that's right. What's interesting to me sometimes in reading the kind of influencer perspective um, so, for example, Gwyneth Paltrow, has, she has a substantial following. She has a lifestyle website called Goop that gets a lot of traffic, and a lot of products are sold through that website. And she's come under fire in connection with a few different kinds of products that she has endorsed and she's talked about on her website. And she, in, in formal press releases, has essentially said, I don't really understand the problem because I'm just me, Gwyneth. 
and I'm just telling you my opinion. And isn't that my right? You know, this is my website. You know you're on my website. And I'm just sharing with you stories like, I used this, and I felt like it gave me more energy. I used this, and it, it really seemed to me that it made my skin look younger, right? So I'm not the company. I'm not the corporation. I'm not the producer of the moisturizer or of the crystal beads that gave me energy. I'm just a person sharing my opinion, right? So there are a lot of interesting First Amendment questions here. And I and part of what makes it messy is the idea that these are just individuals. So not only do they maybe not fully understand the law, but they don't think of themselves as creating advertisements. They think of themselves as just sharing things with the world, being open, being honest, um, and I'm going to do some air quotes here that people at home can't see, but partnerships, right? I, They're partnering I, I think, with brands. I think I could hear those air quotes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what kind of potential problems then does influencer advertising present? I mean, presumably there's potential harms to consumers. Are there maybe potential harms to competitors as well or to sort of the market in general like what kinds of things ought we to be worried about in relation to the kinds of influencer advertising that people are producing yeah so there's not a lot of regulation here as to content right so when we think about traditional platforms when we think about television ads magazine ads um, there are, are kind of rules that companies and that their legal counsel know that they're expected to follow which include having adequate substantiation when you make effectiveness claims about what your products do. When you make claims ab about um, studies backing things up or saying, for example, nine out of 10 dentists recommend this toothpaste, you have to actually have that data to back up those claims. When you make claims about your competitors' goods or services and why yours are better, you have to have the ability to back that up. Um, so there are a lot of different ways to make deceptive or misleading claims and a lot of ways in which the government and competing companies pay attention to those claims. So my concern is when we think about influencer marketing, we're just not seeing that level of attention or that level of regulation. So if influencers make claims about effectiveness, claims about science or data, uh, maybe claims about their own personal use, right? We know um, I have a lot of statistics in the paper about the number of influencers who will accept money to say that they use something and they love something and it works so great for them when actually they've never used it. They've never touched it or held it in their hands. They just heard about it last week when the company called them and said, hey, we'd love for you to endorse this product, right? There are a lot of different ways to be deceptive. And then on top of that, um, I think the format itself, the authenticity that I talked about earlier, that sense of intimacy, I think that exacerbates the deceptiveness. So when you're a follower of an influencer and you feel like that influencer is really sharing honestly with you, talking about their personal experiences, that's why you follow them. You know, if it's a mommy blogger, you feel like you've gotten to hear about their husband and their three children and the trips that they take and their tricks for keeping their house clean. I'm trafficking in a whole lot of stereotypes here. Um, but just for the sake of an example, then then you kind of get hooked on that. And when that influencer tells you something about a product being better than all the other ones on the market, 
it can um, it can be even more effective. It can kind of sink in more deeply. So that's why I think we really ought to be paying attention in this space at least as much as we do in those um, traditional media spaces. Mm. Well, to make it concrete for listeners, maybe you could kind of give a couple examples of particular influencer ads that really, you know, fell afoul of some of these problems and maybe kind of presented claims to consumers that were either false or kind of potentially harmful or didn't reflect the actual experiences of the influencer in a way that might be, you know, causing consumers to be misled about the nature of, of the product in question. Okay, so a couple of examples that I talk about in the paper, um, and in a lot of cases it's hard to know. So without discovery, right, without reading the contracts or having a real sense of what's behind these sponsored ads, I'm kind of speculating. Um, there's a, a former contestant, I think from The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, and she has undergone a double mastectomy, and she blogs about and posts on social media about her experience as a survivor, which is very helpful for a lot of women who are dealing with that. She recently had a post in which um, she talks about this new procedure that restores sensation. It's called resensation, and she says something like, "Isn't science incredible?" And you only know if you scroll through the whole Instagram post and then you click through to her blog page, um, you click through to her blog, you know that she didn't undergo the procedure and she's not a candidate for the procedure. But she's posting sponsored content, encouraging people to look into it. And of course, this is not just an FTC issue, it's also an FDA issue. But this is the kind of thing that we might want to be concerned about um, in making representations about medical procedures, right? I'll give you a much lighter example. Kendall Jenner is a spokesperson for Proactive. Um, so she, of course, is out there sharing testimonials about Proactive cured my acne. I'm so happy. It's so wonderful. It changed my life. There was this big dramatic reveal of that partnership. And then um, a bunch of her serious fans kind of started talking back and said, hey, wait a minute. We've been watching Keeping Up with the Kardashians. We've been reading interviews with you for the last eight years, and that's not what cured your acne. Actually, it was this really fancy, expensive um, laser process that you got from this high-end dermatologist. And these products that she makes that sell for 10 times the price of Proactive. So that's great for you that you want to make some money. But don't look us in the face because we've been paying attention. So don't lie to us and tell us that proactive was what cured your acne. So in a lot of cases, I think we don't know when testimonials are false. But once in a while, we do know. Um, and in that case, I would just be concerned about the types of claims being made, not just about a person's own experience, but what they suggest about the efficacy of the product itself, right? Um, Another question that's interesting to me is about false visual representations. So there's a really interesting line of case law when it comes to magazine ads, television ads. Um, for example, there's an old Tropicana ad with Caitlyn Jenner squeezing an orange right into a carton. And, um, and the Second Circuit found that to be literally false, a literally false statement of fact, because that's not how orange juice is made. 
right? Orange juice is flash frozen. It's pasteurized. There's this whole process. It's not just like you squeeze the orange into the carton. Okay, but if that's literally false, then I expect there are a lot of other things that we could see influencers doing that we would also consider literally false, like maybe posting um, sponsored content, endorsing a tooth whitening product, and then they're also photoshopping the photo to make their teeth look super ultra white, right? That's misleading, if not literally false. Um, Sugar Bear Hair famously only uses influencers to advertise, and pretty much all of your top 100 influencers have endorsed their gummies, and they say things like, oh, my hair has never looked so full and so lush. Um, But also, a lot of those people are known to wear hair extensions. So I don't know that any of them do so in their Sugar Bear Hair posts, but I'm curious about that question, right? What would a court say about... um, Chloe Kardashian posting my hair has never been so full with a picture of herself with the vitamins um, and posting I take two of these a day and then finding out that A, she doesn't take them and B, she's wearing hair extensions in that picture, right? So there are a lot of different ways to deceive consumers, to deceive followers. So as you've noted, the Federal Trade Commission has jurisdiction to regulate advertising, including influencer advertising. At this point, what kinds of regulations, if any, has the FTC imposed on on influencers and the advertisements they, they generate? The FTC does have authority under Section 5 and has actually promulgated a huge number of guidelines, um, formal guidelines that represent not law, but the FTC's own interpretation of Section 5 of the FTC Act. So um, so worth paying attention to, right? And the FTC has been active in answering questions and tweeting and posting online a lot of guidance. Focus primarily actually on disclosure, right? So one of the guidelines is that any kind of material benefit of the kind I was discussing earlier needs to be disclosed and it needs to be prominently disclosed. It can't be buried under a mountain of hashtags. It can't be just tagging the brand. Um, And again, when I say it can't be, I'm talking about the FTC's suggested interpretation. I'm not talking about binding law. But people aren't really listening. So (laughs) there's a lot of talk. There's so much talk about the FTC's cracking down and influencers are going to have to disclose. How can they do it better? Why aren't they doing it? But (laughs) at the end of the day, they're not doing it, right? So a couple years ago, the FTC sent out 93 letters and then, um, you know, asking people, was this a sponsored post? It appears to be, and yet you didn't disclose any kind of sponsorship. Um, and and then waited a while and sent out a second round of letters. And there's a, a nonprofit consumer watchdog called Truth in Advertising, Tina.org, that then followed up and found that the vast majority, so sorry, I think the FTC sent out 100 letters and 93 of the 100 recipients continued to never disclose the material benefit, right? Why? A couple of different possible explanations. One that's been posited is they don't actually understand the guidelines. I think that's going to be truer of the micro and nano and the newer kinds of influencers and a lot less true of the influencers who have a legal team like the Kardashians or who have extensive experience, right? It's not actually that complicated to disclose. Another possibility that I've seen evidence of um, is that brands aren't telling them to, and in fact, brands are sometimes encouraging them not to. So there's some evidence in um, 
kind of filed litigation and some evidence that comes from anonymous surveys of influencers and brands where the brands are acknowledging like, yeah, we put it in the contract um, or we tell them that this is the rule, but ultimately we'd rather they didn't disclose because it makes it, it makes it feel more authentic because we know that when an ad says hashtag ad or hashtag sponsored, followers engage less with it. They scroll on by, they're less interested, they're less likely to click. So we just assume keep doing what we're doing, right? Um, and the FTC has brought a couple of suits and like I said, has sent a number of letters but it is a little bit resource constrained. It has a lot of different things that it's doing. Um, and in some ways doesn't have the ability to, to really effectively change this industry. So, I mean, has there been any outcome from any of these enforcement actions? I mean, what, what's happened when the FTC has kind of caught people out? Does it, do, you, do you see it doing anything in the near future? The lawsuits that the FTC has brought have focused on the companies, the brands, which I think is correct. I think that's absolutely, um, that's who's in control, that's who's responsible, and that's who has the ability to change. So, for example, um, in the Lord & Taylor case, that was an early kind of use, creative use of influencer marketing, Lord & Taylor took this one dress and they sent it to either 50 or 100 influencers and said, style this any way you want, you know, wear it or lay it out on the bed or put a jacket over it, whatever. Use the following hashtags, none of which indicated any kind of sponsorship. Um, and I think maybe tag Lord and Taylor, tag the brand, and we're all going to post them on the same day. So on this day, everybody posts this dress. It's a pretty cute dress. Um, and they're styling it in some creative ways. The dress sells out instantly. The dress is gone, right? Um, but again, not a single one of these influencers has given any indication that this is sponsored content, although it's kind of obvious, arguably. When you see this many posts in one day all featuring the same dress, it seems pretty clear. So the FTC went after Lord and & Taylor and ultimately issued a consent order that had a lot of nice guidance in it, right? So just kind of raising the bar so lord and taylor in the future if you ever use influencers again you have to require them to disclose the material benefit not only do you have to tell them they're required to do it but you have to check on them so you have to review all of that content and if anyone violates the rules you have to take that content down and you have to terminate the relationship with them um, and there were a number of other rules i don't remember right now but just a lot more kind of guidance that i think uh, paves the way toward, I think when you read it, you say, oh yeah, well, if everybody did this, we would have a lot of transparency transparency and clarity. We could have maybe still effective influencer marketing where people enjoy finding out about trends and seeing the ways that the celebrities and influencers they follow are um, exploring those trends, but with an understanding that they're looking at paid content, that they're, they're looking at a form of an advertisement. I mean, it seems to me that the examples that you talk about in that you've just talked about and you talked about in the paper, like seem to range in terms of the sort of severity or potential, like how troubling they are from mm -hmm. things that do seem like, you know, talking about medical procedures and giving people like incorrect information that seems really concerning. Whereas the sort of Lord and Taylor example, it almost reminds me of like payola or something 
right? Which seems like it seems kind of venal and kind of in poor taste. <laughs> but but at the end of the day, I mean, people are buying a dress and they know what they're getting, and you know, is is the FTC in your experience thinking about? its regulation of influencer advertising in these contexts kind of in relation to the way that it regulates other kinds of advertising content? Or is it kind of developing uh, a sort of sui generis sort of set of regulations for this kind of approach to advertising, which in some ways does seem different in interesting ways than ways that, you know, companies have been able to advertise in the past? So the FTC groups influencer advertising with endorsements generally. So I think the FTC sees it as kind of an extension of the ways in which they've tried to regulate um, celebrity endorsements and even, you know, physician endorsements and things like that. In terms of, you talked about kind of the range of um, effects on consumers and the level of harm, and I to that extent, I think Lord and Taylor is a little bit of an outlier, and I think what we're seeing from them, especially lately, is much more of a focus on health and safety. So the FTC is more interested in looking at, for example, vape influencers, maybe CBD influencers, um, and there has been more kind of FTC and FDA teaming up to say, look, if you're going to talk about prescription drugs, there are a lot of rules that you'll need to follow. If you're going to talk about medical procedures, if you're going to talk about tobacco, alcohol, marijuana, all of these things, then we are paying close attention. Um, and like you said, when it comes to fashion and beauty products and makeup and teeth whitening and a lot of other things where... Um, the stakes may be lower, the harm may be less insidious, they're not as concerned. Um, and in fact, I was able to sit down with several people from the FTC, and one thing they said was, um, we're not as concerned about the type of advertising where, at the end of the day, all they're doing is shifting market share, right? So there are 10 companies competing in teeth whitening, and the one that's got 50% is trying to get 57%. And so they're maybe overclaiming in certain ways. And then the one that's in third place ends up being in fourth place, right? That maybe is the territory of the companies themselves. That's what they have a stake in. That's what they should be incentivized to deal with themselves. Um, and we can't do it all. We're, we're a a federal agency, we do what we can, but there's very much a role for private industry to take on. Right. So to the extent the FTC can't meaningfully police all of this kind of activity, especially as it sounds like the amount of it is kind of rap ramping up really, really quickly and it's just becoming even more overwhelming. I mean, to what extent and how can competitors police the sort of activities of their competition. I mean, is that an option for them? And if so, have people been pursuing it? That is absolutely an option, um, and that is the focus of my paper, advocating for competitors to essentially sue one another under the Lanham Act. So the Lanham Act is what we typically think of as the Federal Trademark Act, but it also contains a cause of action for false advertising. And um, competitors have long been able to sue others 
for uh, making false or misleading claims that are material. So in other words, the claims must be not only false or misleading to consumers, but they have to affect the purchasing decision, right? So, um, but there's been plenty of litigation in traditional marketing, traditional advertising venues like television, film, radio, things like that. And I think those principles translate pretty easily or map on pretty nicely to false and misleading influencer advertising. As to the second part of your question, are they, I am not seeing much of it. So part of what I've been working through in the paper, which again is still a draft, um, is why. Why aren't companies doing this if they're noting that there's overclaiming, there are false efficacy claims, there are maybe false testimonials. Um, omission or non-disclosure of material benefit is probably not enough to show a false statement under the Lanham Act, but it complicates things, right? It has the effect of making other false statements even more deceptive in my mind. So I think there are a few, a few reasons. One is going to be the nature of the industries. A lot of the industries that have relied really heavily on influencer marketing are the kind of industries in which the companies are concerned about unclean hands. So they're less likely to go after each other because they don't want that mirror turned back on them. For example, weight loss products, supplements and gums and lollipops and all the kind of quick fixes to lose weight. Nobody's going to say, hey... Your before and after pictures are deceptive and they're doctored, they're photoshopped, or your claims that you can lose 20 pounds in three weeks are outrageous because what happens next is discovery, what happens next is counterclaims, unclean hands defenses, and everybody kind of goes down together, right? Nobody wins. So that's not um, a place where anybody really wants to take that risk. Arguably, even in the industries that aren't typically thought of that way, there may be that concern in influencer marketing, right? So that even in a kind of up-and-up, respected industry, um, that if you kind of look to your neighbor and say, wow, this influencer campaign, nobody was disclosing material benefit, and some of these influencers are out there talking about their experience, making these typicality claims that consumers are going to be led to believe um, will be true for them if they use the same product, well... That plaintiff, too, has concerns about maybe claims that they've made in the past, maybe their future ability to use influencer marketing. Um, and in, in some ways, I think this marketplace is still shaking out. So what are the norms? How do consumers understand them? So it's possible nobody wants to be the pioneer in that right now. Um, I think another explanation is just the fleeting nature so the newest Kardashian trick, which I think is hilarious, is um, to put up a sponsored post and then like 12 hours later go back and edit it and put in the disclosure. So the, by, by the time anybody complains about it, actually it satisfies FTC guidelines, but as we know or can guess, the majority of interaction with a social media post happens in the first couple of hours, certainly in the first, first 48 hours, but probably like in the first 7 or 10 hours, right? So all of that good engagement that you're going to get is already done. Um, and so I've been writing about Instagram posts, not Instagram stories, not Facebook stories, not um, Snapchat, even though there's a lot of influencer marketing happening there. But all 
really across social media platforms, they just kind of get archived, they disappear into the ether. It's hard, I think, to collate and pay attention to and um, read across what the campaign is the way that you can do with a set of um, paper ads, a set of a series of television ads, things like that, the way that you could actually objectively take those and analyze them. So I think that means a few things. It may mean that companies are, are less concerned, even though influencer marketing has proved to be really effective. It may mean that they're kind of not seeing it or they're not seeing the big picture. And it may also pose kind of an evidentiary problem of how do we pull together all of these different influencer claims made over time because some of them just disappeared. Well, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit to the extent that we really know about how consumers actually experience these influencer ads. Like, do different audiences understand what's going on differently? Like, to what extent do consumers sort of have a sense of when things are advertisements, even if they don't explicitly disclose it? And you know, to what extent do consumers care about some of the less troubling forms, especially of influencer advertising, like kind of sponsored content and so on? I mean, is this something that consumers consider material or is it something where the regulation is kind of coming from outside or some mix of the two? I think it's a mix. I think there's a huge variety. Um, it's going to vary across kind of generations. So people who grew up following um, Gen Z seems to have a different attitude from millennials, seems to have a different attitude from Gen X about how they regard claims that these influencers make. So you see some people say, look, anytime I see somebody with a big following, I just assume that anything they ever mention is sponsored content. So I take it with a huge grain of salt. You know, I look at it like an ad, and so I'm not going to be deceived. But other people do seem upset about it. So there's consumers and, and um, followers of influencers have a lot to say. Like the Kendall Jenner anecdote that I shared earlier, people were pretty worked up about it. Like, how dare you lie to us? We're the reason that you're famous. We've been following you. We've been buying what you tell us to buy. We've been wearing what you tell us to wear. Um, in, and kind of letting you be the trendsetter because we're the ones who follow the trends. And so you have to be honest with us. You owe it to us. And I've seen other examples where there's just kind of a backlash. Um, a recent one was just kind of like a health and fitness influencer who promised that she was going to do weekly giveaways, Sunday freebies. Um, and you had to do a few things, like you had to tag a friend and you had to follow another account. And then she would give away, you know, a yoga mat and a water bottle or something. And she did it once and then she didn't do it the next week. And her followers came after her. You made a deal with us. You told us if we followed you, if we tagged a friend, if we followed this other account, you were going to do a giveaway. And that's a real promise. And we want to see you deliver on it. And if you don't, you're canceled. Oh, oh my. Oh, my. Well, you know, part of this makes me wonder whether an additional kind of player in this structure that you're talking about could be influencers sort of policing themselves for the sake of protecting their brand to the extent that, I mean, it sounds like in a way consumers are upset about the non-disclosure of sponsored content, but it seems like they also care as much about the sort of credibility of 
their sort of relationship with the influencer themselves. And, and, I, and I wonder if that might also play a role in sort of helping to sort of police this market. There's a professor at Cornell named Brooke Aaron Duffy who has a book she published recently called Not Getting Paid to Do What You Love, Gender, Social Media, and Aspirational Work. And it's a great book. She interviews, I think, 50 or 60 influencers, and um, a lot of them are bloggers, but essentially the same idea. And a lot of them are really struggling with what you just described, right? So how do I remain authentic? How do I maintain my integrity? While also making some money off of this side hustle that is so incredibly labor-intensive and time-intensive. And they also talk about that struggle with corporate partners. So they say, you know, the brand comes to me and says, we really love your whole thing, your whole kind of concept and the 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 authentic way that you engage with your fans and we want to get in on that so could you tell everybody how amazing our you know shoe inserts are and the influencers um, a lot of them are like huh you're gonna have to send me some I'm gonna have to try them out I'm not gonna tell anybody that I love something that I haven't tried yet and I want to make it fit with my personal brand I want to make it authentic and make it feel real um, and so a number of them do self-police in that way. Um, and they say that they'll only endorse products that they really do believe in or that they already use before they were approached. Others say, look, I got to make a living. This is, we're living in kind of gig economy times. I'm trying to pay my rent. Uh, and again, every post that looks pretty simple takes a ton of thought and planning and a professional photographer I have to get the clothes, I have to get the look, I have to get the spot that I want to shoot in, I have to write the copy, I have to um, really put so much of my heart and soul into this post, um, and I need to keep the lights on. So yeah, I'm going to say yes to some things that I don't believe in and I don't care about, even if my followers won't like it, because otherwise I won't be an influencer anymore, because I will be way too busy driving for Uber. So, Alex, in closing, I wonder if you could, like, reflect on things the FTC might do going forward to sort of help encourage the kinds of external kind of quasi-regulation that you've been talking about by competitors or by influencers sort of regulating themselves. I mean, because it sounds like, you know, to the extent that competitors could play a role— they're not doing it, and it seems like maybe you pointed to a few reasons why they might not be doing it. Are there things the FCC could do to make this more viable for competitors to sort of engage themselves? And is there a role for the FTC in talking directly to influencers about sort of their own kind of brand maintenance and obligations or not? Is that just something that we have to leave to the market to do by itself? One thing I would love to see from the FTC is just more data. So um, there is a history at the FTC of doing some of that empirical research. So, for example, they'll do research like when we say lab-grown diamond to you, consumer, what does that mean to you? Or when we say something is organic, would that feel accurate about something that's made out of 30% organic materials? 70% organic materials? Would it have to be 100%? Can it just be a tiny bit? You know, when we say made in the USA, does that describe something that's made with components from someplace else? 
Um, so there are folks over there and at the related agencies who do that work. And I actually think that's the most valuable thing that we could get in the near future, uh, particularly in terms of materiality, right? So um, there's so much data and so many studies, and almost every single one of them comes from influencer agencies. And their bottom line is they want to convince brands that this is the way to go. This is super effective and awesome. And so they have a really vested interest in persuading us that influencer marketing is effective and cost effective and gives you this huge return on investment. So I would love to see a more neutral party come in and, and, and try to answer this question of whether consumers are being deceived, whether they're being deceived in a material way, um, or whether they're just kind of being marketed too persuasively, right? Which we tend to think is okay to say, here are two different ads. This one makes the case in a way that, that resonates with you. And now you feel more brand loyalty and now you're going to buy this brand. That's what marketing is, right? So is this just marketing doing marketing or is this marketing that is deceptive? Cool. Well, thanks so much. This is an exciting field and been a lot of fun talking to you about this uh, very internet-friendly uh, material. Thanks for having me on the podcast, Brian. Always a blast. Hello, this is Beverly Garland. The Federal Trade Commission asks you to look beyond the smiling faces and super promises because the FTC knows that some advertising can be misleading and deceptive. So don't believe everything you see or hear. Beware of extravagant promises and unsupported claims. Check it out before you buy. Shop wisely. You'll save money. This message is brought to you by the Federal Trade Commission, Washington, D.C.